our distance in time and place from the original telling of this story could um, make it stranger to our ears than it would have been for the first audience. Because weddings in the culture of Jesus' day took place over a number of days. A little bit like, you know, today we make it a really big day. The bride will prepare in one place and the groom will prepare in another place and then often there's a bit of a a car procession to the church and there's the ceremony and then after the ceremony there might be a, a hiatus where the bridal party will go and have some photos somewhere and others might go for champagne somewhere else and then later in the evening there'll be the big banquet or celebration or party, that kind of thing. It's a huge day. People spend an absolute fortune on it. Well, back in the day when the roads weren't paved and there were no cell towers or telecommunications, this just took a bit longer. So the bride would prepare somewhere and the groom would prepare somewhere and they would come together and there'd be this process of uh, celebration and grief, saying goodbye to families and hello to families and all this sort of stuff. And you would never know exactly the timing of when the people were going to show up at the next part of the procession or the celebration that you were going to be part of. And so there was a fair bit of waiting involved, something that we've become really unaccustomed to in our day because everything is so instantaneous. So that's just by way of background. Because I tell you that because everybody else who heard this story when Jesus told it just assumed that much. None of that was a surprise to them. Jesus is telling this story and they're listening and going, yep, that's normal, yep, that's normal, yep, that's normal. When Jesus spoke of these two sets of young women, it was obvious who was wise or who acted appropriately and who was foolish, who was acting in a way that was really just unimaginable given the importance of the celebration that was taking place. We might react to the seeming selfishness of the women with the oil not sharing their oil with the other women, right? That might seem like a bit of a problem to us. Well, it wouldn't have been to the first audience. And we might think it's a bit harsh when those who had to go off and get oil come to the celebration and knock on the door and the host says, I go away, I don't know you. That, that seems a bit harsh. But to the culture of the day, those two things were really appropriate. The really inappropriate thing was there were some people who didn't get oil ready to wait out that time. Like, what were they thinking? Many years ago, as a young man, I was asked to be the best man for a friend's wedding. And uh, I'd been briefed that I would be toasting the bride and groom and I should prepare a speech about the groom in particular And so I started to do that. And about a week before the wedding, I hadn't got my thoughts together very much, there was a change of plans and I was going to be toasting the bridesmaids. So in my very simple way of thinking, I thought, oh, so I need to say a few words about the bridesmaids and toast them. And I set aside the idea of speaking about the groom. Now, I don't know if this is standard knowledge or whatever, but... I gave, the wedding came, I gave my speech, short, brief speech about the bridesmaids, toasted them, went to sit down, and the groom said, what about your speech about me? Oh, I still shiver when I think about that moment. It was awful. <laughs> Everybody apparently knew what my responsibility was, except me. <laughs> 
But unlike me in that situation, these unmarried women knew their role in the community. They were there. They'd shown up. They just hadn't come with the right preparation. The women were not ignorant of their responsibility. They were not engaging in some kind of uh, non-violent social action against the oppression of having to carry you know, lamps or anything like that. They were just thoughtless in what they were doing. They had a well-known responsibility and they'd been caught out not from ignorance, not due to some kind of deliberate resistance, but just being foolishly ill-prepared. And while none of them would have said it like this, kind of their actions are saying, we don't really care. And that might sound a bit harsh, but they're, they're... Actual actions seem to say that. And I think we need to pay attention to this too because I reckon if you'd asked anyone in, of these women in the story, don't you care about the bridal party? They would have gone, yeah, of course we do. Don't you want to be part of this celebration? Yes, of course we do. Are you unaware of your role here? No, I know what I have to do. They would have indicated they were all in and... The reality was they just hadn't thought about the real-world consequences of what that meant. They simply didn't think enough about it to think about what the implications of their actions or inactions were, which is another way of saying they just didn't care enough. And perhaps if I had cared more about my role as a best man, I would have confirmed so I toast the bridesmaids. Do I still talk with you about, to give a speech? Maybe I would have checked it out. Maybe I didn't care enough in that situation. So cultures are important, right? Every culture is a pattern of behaviours that are really important to us, for, to people and to communities, and they give expression to the ideas and the ideals that we hold as central and most important. And these are the patterns that hold a community together. They enco- they're encoded with so much and many things that we take for granted. Like we, we don't have to repeatedly explain everything that we're doing because we're, there's so much shared knowledge that we have. Even really simple things like when you come up to a set of traffic lights, each time you come to a set of traffic lights you don't go, oh, I wonder what the lights mean this time. <laughs> oh, there's a pretty red one. I wonder if I should go or stop. We know green means go, red means stop. Now, you don't even think about that, right? That's just shared understanding. There's more complex and nuanced symbols in our culture, like having a mortgage. You might think, well, that's not a, su- a symbol, that's a financial instrument, isn't it? Well, yes, and it also... Sim- signifies something. It says, I'm investing in this place. I am here for the long haul. I understand like a tree needs roots in the ground that draws resources in, this environment is one that is going to nurture me and I'm going to look after it in some way. And that's why governments for a long time thought the measure of how many people had mortgages was a sign of the stability of the community or the culture. You don't get uprisings when you have people heavily invested in the structure that is, right? And so these things are kind of cultural 
symbols for us. They are the actions and activities that we engage in that express what's most important. And this wedding is a cultural expression. You might say, well, it's really cruel that people had to stand with lamps. Well, that's just the way they did it then, and it meant something. It was a celebration, that kind of thing. Without these symbolic elements, activities and shared understandings that hold society together start to fall apart. And again, I think we can see echoes of that in different places. We become simply a collection of individuals doing our own thing without regard for anyone else. All the one another elements of the community and the society begin to be eroded, maybe in some places to the point of non-existence. And before you might be tempted to think, well, aren't we kind of getting there already? I just want you to think about a few things that we still hold dear together that are so foundational. And one's just happened in the States, the democratic, democratic transfer of power. Really, really important cultural thing. Hasn't always been there, doesn't exist in every place. We are steeped in it and it's a really good way of transferring power. A shared currency we use money. It's a symbol of trust. Those little bits of plastic aren't worth zip. I mean, you, they're not, not worth it. But we know they are because we trust they will be honoured. It's a shared sense of holding something together. Our banking system is another thing that we rely on. Shared compliance to a system of laws, road rules, for goodness sake. Have you travelled in some countries where there aren't really... I think there are rules, but they're just not obeyed. We have a capacity to move things around and people around so well because we share this understanding of the way the system is meant to work. Even community centres, like the one next door, which are powered by willing volunteers who want to come and give themselves to make the community a better place. These are fantastic things. And the bottom line is, if you want to be part of the kingdom, you've got to get part, become part of the kingdom culture participate in the ways that make that meaningful in our world. To be part, you take part. That is to say we have the opportunity to live the kingdom now. And if we refuse this opportunity, we should not fool ourselves that we will take it up sometime later. That is a likely fallacy. As I've said here a number of times before, our actions are the most transparent indicator of what we actually desire, what we think is most important. If we do not desire it now, what makes us think we will change our mind in the future? And one of the characters in this story that doesn't really feature in an obvious way but is very, very much present is the character of time. In this story... Time is an unavoidable dynamic. It is built into this story almost like a character. There is the uncertain waiting time, the time of the shout and the imminent arrival. There is an inopportune time to run off and get supplies of more oil. And then there's a time when the guests all go in and start the celebration. And then the time when the door is closed and the time when people come later and knock and say, can we come in? And the time when they are refused entry. 
of all the aspects of reality we have to deal with in our life, time is the one that really is outside of our control. You can always make more money. Nobody can make more time. We can measure it, but we cannot speed it up. We cannot slow it down. There's no stopping time. We cannot turn it back on itself. Stories have played with the concept of time travel, but no one's actually ever done it. Groundhog Day was a great movie about time kind of standing still in a funny kind of way. But in reality, time marches on in a kind of relentless way. We live our time and then it is gone. And Jesus wants to be really clear about this. See, most ancient conceptions viewed time in a very circular way. It was a a constant reoccurring of seasons, a repetition of the cultivating of the soil, the planting, the growing, the harvesting, year on year, and it would go round and round and round. It wasn't really going anywhere, and to the extent that people were religious, they were entreating the fertility gods to make the rains come at the right time and not at another time so they can bring in the harvest, all that kind of stuff. This is an idea that's echoed in the late 19th century Nietzschean idea of the eternal return. Things are kind of just going round. It'll all be again, same again. Nothing ever changes. But by contrast, the Hebrews had a concern with time going somewhere, of change and development, movement towards an endpoint, a telos, a purpose. We are not simply repeating the same old, same old, Time is moving on to the next and this opportunity will conclude. The idea that it could be too late is a real idea. I often reflect on the relationship I have with my late father. We were always fond of each other, my dad and I, and he was my dad and I was his son. And um, even though we were fond of each other, there were many kind of important and intimate conversations that I tried to have with my dad that for a whole range of different reasons we were never able to pursue. In a kind of mystical way, I have pursued these conversations with my father since his death. Using my knowledge of him and my imagination, I have had kind of conversations in my heart with my father and that's been really helpful for me. But the reality is that we've both missed out on something that will never, ever happen. The reality of exploring these conversations where he could respond and we could clarify and we could engage the issues and know each other more deeply in person, it's not there. That's past. And while my love for my father continues to grow and deepen with the passing of years since his death... I can't help but feel a somewhat one-sidedness in that, the less full-bodied than if we'd done it together in conversation over a cup of tea or a drink, and that opportunity has finished. Some things are time-limited opportunities. This story is often understood to be something of a judgment text, and I don't think it really is. No more than when you put your hand in the fire and it gets burnt, is that a judgment? It's kind of a consequence, right? 
The fire isn't judging you, it's just doing what fire does. It's about being wise or foolish about consequences. <laughs> it's interesting, no one ever sets out to be foolish, right? You know, go, oh, I think I'll be foolish today. <laughs> Sometimes we realise our folly when it is too late to do anything about it. And the encouragement here is to not be foolish. Take the kingdom of God seriously. Not simply as a notion like those foolish young women did, but as something you live toward deliberately now. See, the remarkable miracle is that as you live into God's kingdom now, you will experience it now. As you participate in God's kingdom, you become part of God's kingdom even now. And the alternative is, if you don't, you're missing out. And the opportunity will not be available forever. So the encouragement is, live it now. Do it deliberately now. Enjoy it now. Thy kingdom come now. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you didn't mince your words or try to deceive anyone. You woke us up to things that at one level are so obvious and at another level we are so good at avoiding seeing May your spirit continue to work in us that our eyes might be opened, our hearts enlarged, our faith strengthened and our willingness to walk with you encouraged and spurred on. That we might be changed and we might be the agents of good change in our families and communities, in our city and in our world. To the glory of your name. Amen.